This episode of Start HBS is sponsored by Pair VC. Pair partners with founders from day zero to build category-defining companies, including DoorDash, Garden Health, Gusto, and Branch. Pair has partnered with 117 student founders so far, and they have raised over $650 million. Check out pair.vc dorm for more information. Thanks for joining us again on this podcast by the Harvard Business School Entrepreneurship Club. I'm Bryce DeFigurito, and on this episode, Jad Esper and I sit down with Jason Calacanis. Jason is an entrepreneur and legendary angel investor. In the dot-com era, he started a company called Weblogs Inc., which he sold to AOL. Later, he got into angel investing and invested at the earliest stages in companies such as Uber, Thumbtack, and Calm. Today, Jason has his hand in a lot of things, including running the Launch Accelerator, publishing the book Angel, How to Invest in Technology Startups, and hosting the podcast This Week in Startups. Jason's an opinionated, unfiltered guy, and we really enjoyed talking to him about his journey, his philosophy on building companies, and why we all need to learn to take more risks. One note on this episode is that we recorded it before the outbreak of COVID-19, which is why it doesn't come up at all in our chat. If you're looking for ways to get involved in fighting the pandemic, check out Community vs. COVID-19, a volunteer initiative led by HBS students and the team at Human Agency. Visit communityvs.org to see how you can help. We hope you enjoy our chat with Jason Calacanis. What's a moment in your life that's shaped your perspective of the world? The moment in my life that has shaped the perspective of the world? Hmm. There's so many. Uh, I think becoming an angel investor and learning how wealth is truly created in the world um, was a big eye-opener for me. Uh, And then learning where power resides was another one. And then learning about uh, failure is another one. Which one of those is most appealing to you? And I'll unpack it. Where does power reside? It's a good one. Um, So... When I was young, I would take the train into Manhattan from Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and I was obsessed with magazines, because at the time in the 90s, late 80s and early 90s, magazines were kind of like the new startups. So people would start a magazine, and I always wondered, how did the person get on the cover? Because if the person was on the cover of a magazine, that was true power, Mm -hmm. in my mind. Yeah. And then I looked at the masthead, and I realized, wait a second, there's somebody on that masthead of the magazine who picks who's on the cover. Maybe that's the real power. And power resides in a number of different places. Like obviously being on the cover is very powerful, but picking who's on the cover is also very powerful. Mm. So you could be the Rolling Stones or you could be Jan Wenner putting the Rolling Stones on the cover. Both of these things are explicit moments of like serious power. But the ultimate power comes from, I think, um, being able to start something and being able to fund something. Sometimes you can do both. Mm. Uh, Sometimes you can bootstrap things. So in my career, I've been a magazine editor, uh, which gave me a ton of power. I had created a list in the Silicon Valley Reporter of the top 100 executives in New York's internet scene. Mm. And when I did that, it really um, made me very powerful at the age of like 24 or 25 because I just decided to rank the list. It wasn't just the 100 top people. It was here's number one. Here's number two. Here's number three. And at the age of 23 or 24, I tweaked an entire industry by ranking the list. Mm. And back then, the number one 
company in New York was a company called DoubleClick. It was the largest of all the internet companies. Yeah. But Esther Dyson was also in New York, and she was an angel investor. Mm. And I explicitly put her as number one, even though she wasn't like the biggest company or whatever. She was just had her little consulting firm and newsletter. But I made her number one specifically to tweak everybody, even though she was probably objectively in the top five. Yeah. But I thought, well, she's kind of the most important person to me, so I'll make her number one and I'll put DoubleClick as number two. And that freaked out the DoubleClick employees and team because they thought for sure they were number one hmm. and that that wasn't for question. And so there's a, a really important lesson there. If you think you're important and you want to be on the 30 under 30 list or 40 over 40 or 50 under 50 or whatever it is, those lists are made by like just a bunch of journalists trying to tweak people. They're meaningless. How right? Did, yeah. How did you decide on like who goes on that list and the ranking and stuff? Like, was Well, it just... in the first year, we could only find 60 people who worked in the internet industry because mm -hmm. it was so early. So then I asked those 60 people if they knew anybody who worked in the internet industry. So mm. there weren't 100 people in the industry. So everybody on the team said, we should just do the top 20. And I said, well, fuck it. Let's just ask everybody. And we put lawyers and PR people and everybody else we could think of on the list. Cool. Nice. By the next year, there were 500 people to choose from. And by the third or fourth year, there were too many. And uh, then people just spent like the next years of my life when I was a magazine editor trying to lobby me to get on the list. Yeah. Um, and it was just a way to tweak the industry and to just exert power over other people, make them feel important or not important. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Um, so sort of like having a podcast and you pick who's on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. It's super similar. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. How uh, um, people's perception of like other people's perception of them like really affects kind of how they... People how are they, fragile. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nobody's opinion matters. Yeah. <laughs> what matters is like your opinion of yourself and uh -huh. the work that you create in the world. Yep. Right. But that's not how human nature works. So mm. I spent a career doing that. And then angel investing, you're also anointing people. Yep. So if Sequoia invests in a company, you're anointed. So part of what Sequoia does and Benchmark and all these like famous venture capital firms is they find the best people and they mm. invest in the best people they can find. Yeah. But by the nature of them investing, it's kind of, what do they call that, manifest destiny? Like, mm -hmm. if, if they invest in you, now you are important. It's yeah, like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of Correct. thing. Correct. Yeah. And cool. uh, so there's a bit of that that occurs. So some famous venture capitalist in the 80s, I forgot who it was, said we do two things here. Like, you know, we, we anoint people and we give them the money to go pursue their dreams, right? And that anointing is a big part of it. So we run an accelerator and we accept people into that accelerator and then we introduce them to 150 investors. And by the nature of us putting our name on it and spending 12 weeks with them and putting $100,000 in, which is a de minimis amount of money in the grand scheme of things, we've become the first stamp in their passport. Uh, and then if one of our even more important friends then puts a million in, now they've got the second stamp. Yeah. Now, all they need to do is delight some group of customers enough that they will pay them for whatever product or service they're creating, and then everything starts to occur yeah. in the right direction. And being on a cap table is how wealth is created. Yeah. You have to have a piece of the action. You can't be like a wage slave. Like having a job is like, it's fine. It's admirable. But if you really want to create wealth, you need to have uncapped ability. Mm. Yeah. And so everybody in this company uh, has a piece of my action in the carry of the fund. So if somebody wants to steal an employee here, 
good luck <laughs> because they're no tied. <laughs> well, they're tied to you know whatever yeah. you know. Every dollar I make, I give twenty five cents to our team. Yeah. So. That and it's, could be a, lot it's of a bad idea to bet against your portfolio, I think, too. Bet against a bad bet to bet against me, period. <laughs> because I am an insane gambler who takes massive risk. <laughs> so and that really, that's what life is about. Like the more risk you take, the bigger the potential outcome. You just don't want to bet to the point of the risk of ruin. Yeah. Which is a technical term. So Do you know so, what it means? No. Yeah, uh, you, ever, yeah. you guys go to Harvard. If you don't know a term, ask. What's going on? What do they teach you at this Harvard business? <laughs> Whenever you don't know a term, stop and ask it. See, the yeah, thing is, you guys are at Harvard, so you've been anointed. But don't be yeah. so anointed that if you don't know a term, you're too prideful to ask it. Risk no, of ruin no, is yeah. a technical term in gambling. You guys gamble? Play That's poker honest. at that HBS? Uh, not really. Number one piece of advice, start a poker game when you get back. It's literally how you can learn the most about life is gambling. So risk of ruin means you're placing a bet that could wipe out your entire bankroll. Your bankroll is the money you have. Mm. So let's say we're all professional gamblers and you have a million dollars, you have 100,000 and I have 10. And we play in a poker game. And you set the stakes as the million dollar player at a $100,000 buy-in. Yep. You do not have the risk of ruin because if you lose, you still have 90% of your bankroll. Right. We are screwed because if the average pot is 10 or $20,000, any hand where I get unlucky I could have the risk of ruin in any five or 10 hands. You could have the risk of ruin. You you don't have the risk of ruin. So I play in card games with degenerate, degenerate gamblers who will play with their entire net worth on the table. They have the risk of ruin. Mm. It impacts your play. Because mm. you're sitting there going, if I lose this hand, I have aces. If I lose this hand, I lose it all. And then I start from zero. And some gamblers need that. They yeah, need so you it. said impacts their play like positively or negatively or both? Or? Yes, it can impact their play because they will play very tight and very uh, aggressively at times uh, because they need to. But for the other people at the table, if they know you're playing with the risk of ruin, they can then poke you, right? So if he's got the million dollars, he can play any two cards. And against me with the $10,000 on the table, he can just raise me all in. And if I have ace-queen or ace-king, I might be like, you know what? I might be able to get against kings or aces, two hands that will dominate me. Hmm. So I better not get involved in the shenanigans. Yeah. Uh, and then if people know that, they will do that to you. Interesting. So anyway, risk of ruin is a kind of a the one thing you have to make sure you are aware of when you make bets. So when I make bets, the reason I specifically constructed the accelerator, uh, which is very similar to Techstars uh, or uh, Y Combinator, which pioneered the model. They both started at the same time. Uh, we cribbed their you know kind of approach, which is $100,000 for 6% is it lets me get to know these companies before I place a bigger bet. Yeah. And really bet shaping and you know how you do continuation bets is critically important. So $100,000 if I lose it who cares. But on that next bet I'm going to put in 500 or a million. I start to care. Yeah. And the next bet after that might be 2 and a half million. Now you really care. And so what you can do is just like that starting hand in poker, you look at it and say, oh, I have ace queen. It's a pretty good hand and it's uh, they're hearts. And if two hearts come on the flop and I hit a queen and that's the highest card, well, now we've got a really good hand shaping up here. I got a chance at hitting a flush. I could improve, hit another queen, maybe an ace comes. Lots of great possibilities. Um, but if the board comes down with three spades and an ace and a king, or a king, and I don't have a king, and somebody else could have those spades, man, I better get out of that hand pretty quick. I may not want to commit more money to it. So I like to look at those companies and then figure out if they're executing at a high level and when they are. 
I just look for the people who are tripling. Triple, 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 double, double. Right. If they can triple revenue three years in a row, yeah. that's not by accident. Yeah. Now, if they increase revenue by 25 or 50%, like nobody really cares. Yeah. I mean, it's a great business for you to own, but it's not a great business for a venture capitalist. To yeah, own. yeah. So we just monitor all those companies. We invested in 80 last year, 40 of them in the accelerator, 40 of them outside of the accelerator. And we're just looking for those ones that can triple revenue every year. So this is actually like touch on something we wanted to know. You could probably go out and join, you know, Sequoia or name whatever top VC fund. I've been why, offered to join a lot of those. So why why do you keep hustling on your own? What like do not does not work well with others. <laughs> <laughs> it was on my report card from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Talks back to teacher. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So I mean you have to be self aware. I mean yeah. I could work well with others, but the idea of somebody stopping me from making an investment and saying, explain to me why we're investing in a meditation app. Like that, if I worked at one of those big firms and I tried to invest in Com, mm-hmm. the Com team told me they had met with like 80 investors or something and they all said no. And then I was the 81st who said yes. Uh-huh. And group decision making is death, especially at the early stage. Consensus never creates excellence. Yeah. And so at the early stage as an investor, you literally have a list of 100 reasons not to invest in a company and a list of two or three of why you should. And the two or three are typically the two or three founders. Maybe the product is really good. Maybe the customers love it. But generally, you're, ba- you're backing on those founders. And that is my unique skill in the world is to look at people deeply in the eyes and then figure out if they're going to be <laughs> successful in life. What, what do our eyes tell you? <laughs> I'll tell you after the podcast. Okay. <laughs> I sense a little fear. A fear. Hmm. A little bit of fear. Don't be scared, boys. We're good. We're good. <laughs> Don't be scared, boys. The worst that can happen is that you fail and you embarrass yourself in front of the entire world. That's and then that. you get back up and then you prove them all wrong. I just finished and the, that's the, the fountainhead. So like this is like yeah. you know, really speaking to me. Terrible writer, but some good points. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean the prose is terrible, is it not? It's uh-huh. like hard to get through. Yeah, it's pretty dense. Yeah. It's pretty hard to get through, yeah. I mean, there is something to the view that there are people who create stuff in the world and then there are people who do not. Yeah. And we got to be very careful that we don't hate the people who create as fucked up as, can I curse on this? Yeah. Yeah. You're sure. going to get in trouble. Is this like an no. official HBS thing or is it's a, it's a student run club. So you can right. say whatever you want. So it's kind of official. <laughs> it's got the logo, <laughs> but anyway, um, we, we might screw up the entire capitalistic system here because your generation seems to hate founders and entrepreneurs. So, like, you're going into a world as, like, the hated class. When I came into the world, entrepreneurs and creating companies, and especially tech ones, we were we were considered the heroes. Now we're the villains. <laughs> so, it's like, great timing, boys. You're going into the world right as everybody hates capitalists. And trust me, nobody, everybody hates people who went to Harvard. Yeah. And capitalists who went to Harvard, God, you're in the most hated class ever. Oh, like Elizabeth yeah. <laughs> Warren wants to specifically cap your ability to do things in the world. Like they literally want to ban the billionaires. Yeah. So anytime anybody wants to put a cap on people's success, I would get a little bit worried because it starts to dip into communism, socialism, and other bad mm. things that have never worked in the history of humanity. And once you start looking at the state to provide for you, I mean, have you ever seen a high functioning government? <laughs> have you ever seen a government that did the right thing consistently maybe Denmark yeah or Norway I mean we're talking about countries with 5 to 15 million people that are 
as homogeneous as homogeneous gets. Like everybody thinks the same. It'd be like getting Rhode Island to, you know, function properly if it was its own country. Like possible, maybe even probable. Uh, but you're not going to get the world to work that way. That's fair. Um, so good luck, boys. But so, don't be scared. So yeah, so we've got Take a bunch of risk. friends who are like founders at HBS. What would you What would you say to MBA founders? What do you think their blind spots are? What do you think like they're not good um, at from your? Well, don't worry about experience. anybody else's opinion, for God's sake. Because like I was saying, like people hate people from Harvard and they hate MBAs. And it used to be like an MBA was a good thing to have. Yeah. So you got to ignore everybody's opinion. Just because you have an MBA doesn't mean like. You're some like robotic idiot who just like went the easy route. <laughs> like there is some reason why it's hard to get in there. And like it's a good group of people. You obviously are very smart and driven. Uh, but don't also get drunk on it yeah. because you could have all the degrees in the world. But if you don't know how to talk to a customer and have empathy for them and study them and then delight them, uh, that's probably the, the weak spot or the blind spot with MBAs is that because they've trained you to read so many cases and you know so much uh, really good stuff that you might forget the cardinal rule, which is like all of these services, all of these products are consumed at the other end by a human being. And uh, if you don't delight them and make something of meaning and purpose for them, uh, you might be overthinking it. Mm-hmm. That's what I, that's I think the number one cardinal sin of the of the MBA class or the highly educated class. I'm goofing on you a little bit, but uh, just so you stay humble, because they do delude you into thinking that you're the masters of the universe, don't they? They tell you, like, you guys have to start thinking about your ethic and moral compass because you're going to drive the future of humanity. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Guess what? Like, you're going to work for the people who drive the future of humanity. Yeah. Like, all the people I know who are changing the world do not have MBAs from Harvard. I mean, you get good jobs, you make a lot of money, but if you really want to change the world, you're going to have to be fearless. You're going to have to let go of the group think. Yeah. When somebody says a word you don't know, you have to say, hey, what does that mean? Explain why that's important. And that's the problem with this kind of higher education, mm. I think. So you ask for the league, I'll tell you, that's the blind spot of the league is the fear. Yeah. And the entrepreneurs who do the best are the ones who are fearless and pursue their vision of the world yeah. against everybody telling them that that's not the right thing. Humans yeah. are scared creatures. Yeah. Humans are conservative and fearful by nature because the humans who survived, this is my thesis, and I think probably a lot of books agree with it, like being conservative means you live longer. Therefore, the gene pool is designed to make us all fearful of going into that body of water because we don't know what's under the water or going over the hill because we don't know what's on the other side. But sometimes going over the hill, like you, you find the oasis of the pot of gold or the orchard and the fruit and the, the good stuff. Yeah. And so you got to be a little fearless and you can't let people's opinion matter all that much. Right. So that's what my hope for you guys is, is that, you know, if you're there and you're starting companies, people are going to tell you all the reasons of why it's going to fail. Yeah. And a lot of people would like to see you stay down in the ditch they're in. And, uh, you know, if you really want to achieve excellence, you got to be able to ignore a lot of people who tell you it's not possible. When I started a magazine, I showed people the first issue and they said to me, that's not a magazine. That's a photocopy. That's a 16 page photocopy. And they looked at it and said, no, that's a magazine. They said, no, Jason, that's a 16-page photocopy with typos. And I said, yeah, but I put a full image on the cover, and that's what defines a magazine. So in my own deluded mind, my 16-page photocopy, which was a zine, was a magazine. Mm. And four issues later, five issues later, it had done so well, had so many advertisers, that it was printed on glossy paper, and it was, in fact, a magazine. So being delusional and not being practical is really the goal here. 
You have to pick something and pursue things that are not practical. And that's part of the problem with having studied so much stuff out there is that you actually probably know better than the average founder how hard things are and how often they fail. And then that gets inside your head. Yeah. And then you stop taking risks and you go for safe things. Mm. The safe things don't change the world. Like it's yeah. the, You want to go after the 1% or 2% chance. You don't want to go after the 80% chance. All the investments I've made that have worked out spectacularly are the ones that people, by and large, said would never work. Yeah. Uber, Calm, Robinhood. Like these companies, people said, are terrible ideas. If everybody, if there's consensus, back to that word consensus, to so your first question of like, why didn't I join a big firm? Consensus equals death. Yeah. Yeah. So don't get in the consensus game. No, I think I think that's amazing advice. And um, I think in terms of like kind of, you, you spoke to understanding users. And um, when it comes to consumer businesses, you sort of need to crack culture and build habit. You know, Calm built habit, Uber built habit and crack culture, Robinhood as well. When it comes to cracking culture and building habit, what advice do you have for founders and kind of navigating that? Well, <clears throat> you're building for somebody. Um, and so if you're building something that you yourself love, the chances of other people loving it are increased. And building things in a vacuum is very bad. Um, so there's a book called The Lean Startup by Eric Reese yep. and uh, Steve Blank, I think, pioneered along with Eric, this concept of the lean startup. Um, and I think, they both give, I think they both give each other equal credit for it. But they basically took the scientific method to startups. So how can you test a thesis, a theory, uh, a product or service with the least amount of work? So if you had the idea for a meditation app, if you created a landing page that said, a landing page that said, um, enter your email and we'll email you a meditation every day mm -hmm. that takes 10 minutes. Yeah, and that cost $1. And then you sent 100 people to that page from a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad or a Google ad or a YouTube ad. You could then just look at the percentage of people who add their email. Yep. And then you could say, um, sign up for $10 a month, sign up for $5 a month. You could just change that one variable and see which one people sign up for the most. Where you could say, sign up for an email or download the app. And you could see how many people sign up for the email, how many download the app. Maybe the email is the best format. Maybe the app's the best format. And so that kind of testing and iteration and the speed at which you can test and the number of tests you can run equals your success. So Calm happens to have a savant founder. Uh, one of the two co-founders is like a product savant, and the other one is very good. But Alex, I think, is a savant at um, product, and his partner, Michael Acton-Smith, is a, also a savant at business, I think, and then also at you know very strong at product. Yeah. It might give Alex the edge on it, but it would be, be a photo finish. And... Um, you know, they, they just out of the box build things that are very, very creative and uh, very well thought out. And yeah. they usually come up with 50 ideas and test 10 of them. And then we all as the public see one. Yeah. And that's really what the people who are making things work are doing. Everybody just thinks like, you know, Steve Jobs was just like, oh, here is the iPhone. And it's like, no, Johnny, I've presented him with 50 versions a month for 10 months. And they iterated, iterated, iterated. And we just never saw all those prototypes laying on desks with velvet you know, blankets over them. And so really it is about grinding it out and testing it if you want to get that product market fit. And then you know, this uh, founders, uh, the innovator's dilemma is a very real thing. I've seen people in two-person companies build a product and then not be able to throw it away to build another one. Mm. That's better yeah. because they were so tied to the six months they put into the last one. And uh, 
it's a very acute problem. Yeah. Like we as humans be, are like, well, we built that house. I don't want to knock it down. Do you know how much work went into that? Or I don't want to abandon it and then build a house on higher ground because that one's going to get wiped out by the floods yeah. every season. So literally people are such creatures of habits that they keep building the same houses in the same fire zones and same flooding zones. When they could take the insurance money and move it up the hill or away from the fire or away from the floods, but they don't. Keep building it in the same spot. Why? Yeah, yeah. it's yep. literally the innovator's dilemma in like some primal, like f most primal version of it. Um, you almost have to break habit in order to build habit. That sort of. Uh, yeah, I think you just have to study the data. Right. Like, yeah. if the data says this house is going to be wiped out by a flood every two or three years, you might want to put the house somewhere else. Cool. Yeah, but you know, consumer products are lightning in a bottle in a lot of ways. Like, yeah. you, you, and that's why iteration is important uh, and resiliency. Enterprise products, pretty easy to get them all to a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue. So yeah. that's the challenge on the other side for enterprise is that scale. Um, yeah, like building something that a lot of people want and that can scale, it's, a, it's pretty well said actually, um, is hard. So yeah. you can get modest scale and then think, I got it. and But then you can't get the hundredth customer and you can't get the first 99 mm -hmm. to buy twice as much. So. That is the problem with enterprise. So you, you you have a greater chance of building something that makes money in enterprise, but yeah. a lower chance of building something that makes a lot of money and changes the world. Yeah. We're going to jump into rapid fire questions because I know you have uh, another podcast to do. So um, yeah. first question is you have unlimited time and money. What w problem would you solve? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think you should solve the problem that's most personal to you uh, because solving these big problems becomes so painful and if it's so painful that you don't want to continue then you're going to quit so it's very important that the idea be personal and important to you unfortunately i have an addiction to media and i keep building media companies um, and i'm trying to get rid of this sickness but i'm feeling it's with me for life <laughs> so like the media business is the worst business you could possibly be in especially right now and so i keep building things like inside.com or this week in startups or conferences because mm. i personally get enjoyment out of it um but yeah, make it personal. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of like what's important right now, the things that have not been tackled, about five years ago I made a list and it was education, healthcare, and construction, housing. And we were able to you know, make some strides there um, and uh, specifically in construction and homes. Yeah. And we made a big bet there in Blockable and it's working. So things that people don't think can be solved is really a great place to go. Like mental health, people just think that's not solvable. And construction, that's not solvable. And homelessness, that's not solvable. It turns out the things that people think are not solvable, um, often they're actually very solvable. It's just that people have learned helplessness. Like 99% of people on the planet live in a home. Yeah. And we think that we can't get the last 1% to live in a home. Why? Or like everybody's really well educated, but we don't think we can lower the cost of education. Why? What? what the, the cost of education can only go up 10% a year. Why can't it go down 10% a year? Why can't it go down 20% a year? Why can't it be free? Why can't it be close to free? It could. We just, for some reason, this learned helplessness has made people believe that it's an insurmountable problem. Yeah. So cool. find something like that. Cool. Um, so related, what do you want to be remembered for? Me? Yeah. Oh, I don't care. I'll be dead. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, uh, don't get too caught up in that one. Like, uh, 
be, just enjoy what you do every day so that you go to work every day and enjoy it. It's about the ride, not like the destination. Yeah. The destination is certain. Six feet under the ground. <laughs> That's where we're all going to wind up. We're going to be remembered as worm food, and like a big piece of stone. Like legacy is not, I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess there's an argument that like focusing on your legacy can make you do better work, whatever. Uh, but, uh, you know, listen, I, I didn't go to HBS and uh, I went to school at night and I'm just a hard worker. Like, I just think, did I do a good job today? Did I help enough founders today? Did I place enough bets this year? Was the podcast great or good? Just be in the moment, be present, do something you enjoy every day. Like I wake up every day and I love doing a podcast and I love investing in companies. Yeah. Like that's the best advice I can give you. And it's a kind of a corny thing to say, do what you love. Um, but you know, do what you're interested in. Yeah. Like do what you find fascinating. Forget about love. It's a kind of a weird word. Yeah. Like I, I love ice cream. <laughs> I'm not gonna eat ice cream all day. Um, but I'm fascinated by, you know, creating companies and investing in them and starting them in that process. I'm I find it really intellectually rigorous and challenging. So do that. Cool. Yeah. Last question. Go ahead. Um, so you're the commencement speaker at Harvard Business School. Um, year one or year two? Uh, like at graduation? Yeah, graduation. Oh um, what's the takeaway from your speech? Takeaway from my speech is take more risk. No gamble, no future. Yeah. You have to take risk. Against the feeling in your gut that tells you don't take risk, you know, you have to come up with a metaphor in your mind mm. of a way for you to take that risk without breaking your brain and your spirit. Mm. And if you went to Harvard, the expectations of you are so great, they put all this nonsense in your head that you're in charge of the world and yada, 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 and it's really you're really important. You're not really important. None of us are important. Yeah. Like the human species has been here for like a millisecond of a millisecond um, in the grand scheme of things. So you gotta come at it with a little more humility and just do the work and not and take that risk. And so what I try to do with my founders is explain to them that it's a video game. Play the video game with reckless abandon and understand that you can always put another quarter in the machine. You can always hit the reset button. You're, you fail at the video game. It's not like our primal lizard brains where if you did swim across that river and get eaten by a crocodile, you don't get to swim across the river again. You get to swim across the river a million times. So take some goddamn risk. No gamble, no future. Take yeah. the risk. Well, I love that. that if you sense. don't, you know, this is this is your big leak in your game, yeah. is that they train you to not take risks. They they focus on all the reasons things failed. And a lot of the lessons they'll teach you about why eBay was successful or why Uber was successful do not apply to today. Mm. They no longer apply. The, the business world and systems are very uh, dynamic. Mm. So what the class of 1989, 99, you know, and... 2009 and 2019, the world that you're entering is very different each time. So if you take those lessons that they taught you and then you try to apply them now, they may or may not work. And I think probably will not work is the key one. Like what made Uber su successful or what made Calm successful may not work now. There may be some lessons in there. So you have to be a little open-minded to looking at the data and looking at the customer experience and let that guide you, not what you learned. Yeah. You learned a way of thinking, I hope. Um, but go to it with reckless abandon and taking risk. Yep. And the majority of startups fail. So you need only create three or four startups in order to succeed. What most people do is 
they fail at the first one or two and then they stop and then they go work for Goldman or Deutsch or whatever else you're working on. So just keep taking that risk. Yeah. And don't, 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 do not go to Wall Street or push paper or no. be some management yeah. consultant. That is fucking death. <laughs> Search and death. You will look at every one of those years with regret that all you did was like write some paper that nobody read or move some spreadsheet <laughs> that didn't actually create positive impact in the world. Be the master of your own destiny, not a wage slave. I mean, that's the reason to go, you know, to Harvard or whatever, is to then go create something in the world. Like the Stanford kids got a big edge on you guys because they actually want to start companies and they were they were here in the cradle of innovation and you're in the cradle of finance and management consulting. Yeah. Get the fuck out of there as quick as you can. We're hope, That's we're my message. That. We're Get the fuck that. out of there as quick as possible <laughs> yeah. and take some goddamn risk. No gamble, no future. Yeah. That's well, an awesome, so yeah, yeah, awesome way to end it. All right, boys. <laughs> cool. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jason.